Before I really get started in the meat of the sermon, I do want to take a minute to give thanks to all of you for making me feel at home here. It's been a wonderful summer, a different summer than any of us might have expected with Charlotte's illness and Rice and Robert's uh, upcoming retirement. And it's been a real gift to me to be able to step in and help just a little bit, and I, it made me realize how much I miss this. It's a, it's a great experience, the, the task of preaching and learning and listening to you all and hearing your stories uh, has been a big part of uh, whatever gifts I've brought back to this community uh, over these last few months, and uh, you all have been a real gift to me, so thank you, and gift to Robert and Sharla and to Paul and Misha, wherever they are now staff here, you all have just been incredible, very easy to work with, which makes me think the future for Snowmass Chapel is going to be great. We're undergoing some changes, changes are daunting at times, but they're also liberating, and I think that's where we stand today in this tension between uh, the past and the future, and that's where we're living. A few weeks ago, I was fly fishing one day. Up in the frying pan, the water was running high, about 300 cubic feet per second. Fishing was okay, not great, but not bad. And I could see up in the distance a storm blowing through the valley. I had crossed the river away from the road, and it was over 300 cubic feet per second. Took me some time to get across, but I knew the place I wanted to fish had a lot of good fish. Well, the storm blew in and trapped me over there, and it was raining so hard and lightning was so close that I actually put my fly rod under one tree, crawled under the bush of another, and decided to ride the storm out. Uh, lightning felt like it was right in my backpack. Uh, I could feel the static electricity building up in my hair and my skin. And I won't say I was afraid, but I was appropriately concerned that this could go south pretty quickly. <laughs> and uh, lightning was striking. I had heard stories of fishermen getting, having their rods act as a lightning rod, so I put my bamboo rod about 100 feet away from where I was hit, sitting under the bush. And I just waited and waited and waited. And I wear glasses, so my glasses, I couldn't see very well. It was raining so hard, I couldn't see the light, I couldn't see the river. And I was afraid to try to cross the river in the middle of the storm. And I thought, well, this could really be bad. But after about an hour, the storm began to move through, like it always does. The sun came out, and the fish started feeding. And over the next 45 minutes to an hour, I probably caught a couple of dozen fish on a dry fly. Now, what a great metaphor for life. In the middle of the storm, in the middle of the fear, in the middle of the grief of what might could go wrong, the fish started feeding again. And that's kind of the way grief strikes us, isn't it? We get into situations not of our own making often, sometimes of our own weaknesses, but tragedies happen. We don't like that. If we look at the news, over the last 30 days, think of the Moroccan earthquake, the fires in Mali, the floods in Libya, tens of thousands of people displaced and losing their lives in tragedies. I was seeing a friend of mine, Allison Daly, some of you may know, with Pathfinders here in the valley, 
about this issue of grief, Pathfinders is a remarkable organization for those of you who don't know it. They do a lot of grief counseling for all different kinds of situations. And she said something to me that I found very profound. She said, grief has a way, just when you think it's gone, of roaring back into our lives. So the storms can pass through. Fish can start feeding again. But grief has a way of breaking into our reality time after time again. So the question becomes, not why me? Not how did this happen? But what do we do about it? How do we live with these horrible tragedies that we all experience? I, I remember one night, 30 or 40 years ago, I was on call, and seven teenagers in Waco were killed while they were racing streetcars down our main thoroughfare. I was in the emergency room. I had to deal with seven families who had lost beloved children to senseless acts of just impulsive childhood stupidity. What do you say to people like that? Well, situational grief is part of the human journey. As much as we would like to think we're immune from it, none of us are. We lose our loved ones, our children, our parents, our spouses. We lose our jobs. We lose our financial security. We retire and we lose our identity. It's a form of grieving. I'm, Robert and I talk about that a lot. It's, it's a real phenomenon. When things change that disrupt our identity, we rail and lose faith because of our grief. No one is immune to that. You don't get through this life with a hall pass from grief. It seems to be hardwired into who we are as humans. I think the biblical stories of grief, and I googled it, I really lost count. I think there must be hundreds. And the responses are all the same. People rail against God, and then in their moment of profound need and profound weakness, they find God there once again give them the strength to persevere. The road with grief isn't around it. It's through it. It's through it. You know, Elizabeth Keebler Ross wrote that grief has five stages. Denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. But in my time in medicine and ministry, I've learned that grief isn't linear. It's not something that starts off at one particular phase and you move to another and you move to another, it comes in wave like Allison Daly reminded me. Just when you think it may be over and you survived it, it may slap you upside the head again. A few years ago I was asked to speak at a wonderful conference called the Schwartz Center for Compassionate Healing. It's a big organization in Boston. It was a national conference, over 2,000 people there and we talked about how medicine has failed this world, this, this community of America, by becoming so tilted towards the scientific model that we fail to appreciate the stories and the compassion that, which really lies at the heart of medicine. And I sat on a panel with two other physicians, myself, a pediatric oncologist from the Cleveland Clinic, and a neurosurgeon who writes for the New York Times. And and our task was to explore the notion of compassion and grief through the art of writing about it. We all had different takes on that. 
One of the things that I learned is that writing itself, telling the story, is important in people that are on the grief journey. One of my co-speakers at that conference, a dear friend that I stay in touch with still, the neurosurgeon, wrote a book out of that panel that we talked about called Grief Connects Us. And I've, I've emailed him this week and told him I was going to use the title of his book as the title of my sermon. But I think that's a profound thing that he hit upon that we all learned that week in Boston. There are two things that connects us one to the other as humans across cultures, across national identities, across religious beliefs. Two things that are common to the human experience. One is grief, but the other is love. Love is the only antidote to profound grief. A friend of mine said that, that love is God's way of responding to our common grieving. Without great love, you don't have great grief. Great love leads to profound grief. The deeper the love, the more the pain. And that's the paradox of what it means to be human. This conference was, uh, was a big part of our journey as in that conference was to learn what the word compassion means. Compassion, quite simply, Latin from come and passion means to suffer with. Compassion is not about observing something and feeling bad about it. It means entering into that world of suffering, entering into that storm passing through the river, entering into that darkness where you think all is lost. One of the writers at that conference has a great book out. It has a funny title, but it points out as a culture how hesitant we are to really dive deeply into the dark wells of grief. His title is, of his book is Let's Talk About Death Over Dinner. <laughs> I think that's a fascinating title. How do we engage something as profound and real as grief and death and loss without talking about it? We tend to push it aside, hoping it'll go away. But I think Jody's uh, the, the author of the book um, that I mentioned. We have to find ways to deal with our grief whether it's writing or speaking or talking or hugging or music or listening or fishing. There's a way that we deal with all that. I'll tell you a brief story. A special pre-med student of mine I taught about 15 years ago. She's now director of a high-risk pregnancy center in Houston. She was one of the first really, really gifted pre-med students to switch her major to medical humanities. So she went from biology to medical humanities where she learned stories of healthcare that relate to compassion and loss and forgiveness and things that we would not normally associate with the pre-med curriculum. And she took these classes and it became so raw for her. She was a brilliant student, gifted writer. Her weekly essays were stunning. But she explored her own grief, her own inner journey into what she was seeking in the world of medicine, and she got frightened. She got scared, like we all do. And she came and she said, Dr. Addis, I, think I, I, I don't think I can do this. I'm going to drop my pre-med major and find out something else to do. I said, wonderful, you're listening to your spirit. Well, a year later, <laughs> 
she came back to me and said, I can't live without this. She needed to be able to listen to stories and to respond with something inside her. So she switched back to medical humanities, went to medical school, and is now on a medical school faculty. But she continued her interest in writing as a way of dealing with grief. And I'm going to share with you some words of a story she wrote to me recently after losing her own first very difficult pregnancy. And this is Allison's word. Her name was Allison, too. She's talking to her patient. She says, I reach for your hand, involuntarily a compulsion. What you don't know is that in this moment, I need that touch as much as you do. It is what I needed when I was you, what I would have wanted. You feel my hand and squeeze hard as you blink back a welling of tears and feel that ache in your chest unique to women in these circumstances. It's the worst part of my job, a reminder of some of the worst days of my own life. I continue to cling to your hand even as the anesthesia puts you to sleep. Nothing prepares you for the silence, the pursing of the doctor's lips as she squints at the shades of gray on the screen. The air feels thick with the worst kind of anticipation. As you put it to me today, the worst of your fears are now imagined. She clicks more buttons, followed by more silence, the deafening kind. And in the words that no one sees coming in the midst of excitement and eagerness, I'm so sorry, but there's no heartbeat. There's no heartbeat. And for me, she goes on to say, the patient turned doctor and doctor turned patient. I walk this fine line of hard-earned knowledge and empathy every day. An extra level of compassion and understanding, one in the trenches of trying to bring a baby of my own that allows me to meet my patients in their deepest valleys where they most need me. And her final words to her patient says, Oh friend, I know. I know. I know so well. We'll get through this period together. That's her response to grief. One of the only ways you get through it is to share it. That means being there for those of us that are going through this. It doesn't mean observing from a distance. It means diving into the gutter, diving into the darkness, diving into the gloss, and living through that loss until the light breaks through and the fish start feeding again. Grief and love, I believe, are two sides of the same coin. We ask why this happens, there's no answer. You know, people have written for centuries about if God is all-powerful and all-good and all-knowing, then why is there so much tragedy in the I don't have a clear answer for that, but I do know one of the most profound passages in the Bible that addressed that question is when Jesus saw his friend Lazarus dead. What does the scripture writer say? Jesus wept. God is not immune from our suffering. God is a part of our suffering. And I really think in ways that I don't understand, suffering is not just a part of being human. Suffering is a part of God himself or herself. 
It seems to be hardwired into the universe that we are created with this magnificent twin gift of suffering and grief and loss. So I think we're called to engage our grief, to jump into the heart of God where suffering lives as well as where love lives. My final question for all of us is how do we survive these storms that pass through our valleys when lightning is all around us? Well, I think I would leave you with four answers. First is community. Places like Snowmass Chapel, places like your work community, places like your friends, places like your golfing buddies, places like your fishing buddies, places like your mahjong circle. Those people are there for you. Don't forget about them. But it means we have to be brave enough to embrace our fears, right? We all like to run away from things that hurt us. That's the normal human condition. But I think an honest look at grief tells us we don't need to run away from it. We have to embrace it. It's the only way we're going to get through it is to embrace it head on. And then find something like writing for my, my student Allison, sharing the stories, writing out your fears can be very therapeutic. And finally, I would leave you with Viktor Frankl's answer or response to that question. He wrote in his famous book, Man's Search for Meaning. Viktor Frankl was a man in a concentration camp, befriended several guards, wrote a magnificent little book called Man's Search for Meaning. He found that service and kindness was one antidote to grief and cruelty and evil. We can push back against it or we can counter it with acts of kindness to those around us. And we have opportunities for that every day. We don't have to be a pastor or a caregiver or a therapist or a nurse. All we have to do is listen to the human stories. They're there all around us. They call us out of our own moments of weakness into our own moments and opportunities for strength and for grace and for loving. So as we go forward into this now, this new time of transition at the chapel with the winding down of one ministry and the dawning of a new form of ministry, we're going to see some ebbs and flows of our life together. So moments of grief and loss as we miss Robert, but also love as we welcome Charlotte into her new role. These are opportunities for God to teach us a little bit about who he is, but most importantly, who we are. As the prophet said in Ecclesiastes, there's a time and a season for everything. A time for grieving and a time for loving and a time for hoping and a time for believing. Let us pray.